Let's open our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6. Uh, we'll start in verse 60 today, and you can also find that on page 892 of the Pew Bible. And hear the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to these words of eternal life this morning and we ask that your Holy Spirit would do just that in our souls, that he would... Bring us into deeper communion with you that we might know the life that you know with your Son by the Holy Spirit. The life that you have had with them since the beginning. I pray that that life, that eternal life, would be so worked into our souls this morning that we would leave encouraged and heartened for the mission before us and all the more uh, longing for that eternal life to be known uh, by sight in the age to come. I pray that you would do what the Spirit alone can do in us, and that is to give life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'd just like to set before you four truths from this uh, last section in John chapter 6. Uh, that I see the Apostle John um, unfolding. Uh, this is our last week uh, in chapter 6, and for the next four weeks, some other uh, men will be uh, preaching, like uh, James Williams and Wes Duggins and Jonathan Watson, so that I can invest some time in uh, the children's ministry area. Uh, but, so, but for this morning, I'd like to, to look at four truths... Uh, you probably noticed as we were reading uh, verses 60 to 71 that there are really only two people, two kinds of people in this text. There are those who uh, treasure Jesus' words and stay with him. And there are those who find Jesus' words uh, intolerable, distasteful, and walk away. Uh, these are the same two groups of people we've seen throughout 
John's Gospel. In chapter 1, there are those who do not receive Jesus when he comes to them, and there are those who do receive Jesus and believe in his name. In chapter 3, there are those who hate the light of Jesus and turn away, keep turning to the darkness. And there are those who come to the light and stay in the light of Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 4, there are those who welcome Jesus into their town, kind of superficially, as the sign giver, the miracle worker. And there are those who actually welcome Jesus into their lives as Savior of the world. And then here again, we see these same two groups of people popping up. Those who grumble and walk away, and those who marvel and stay. And John's point has been the same all along. Jesus has not entered a neutral world, but a world of unbelief, a world of darkness, a world of people suppressing the truth about God, a world of hostility against God's Son. And when that unbelieving world encounters the person of Jesus Christ, there are only two choices. Either remain in unbelief to your eternal destruction or believe for eternal life. And John has written these words to leave us believing for eternal life. That's, that's what he says towards the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. That's why this book exists in your Bibles. So these four truths that we're going to talk about today are written to lift you up out of the shaky, life-threatening pit of unbelief and set your feet upon the rock of a never-failing Savior. So let's, let's just walk through these four truths one at a time so that we might find ourselves all the more pressed into that enduring faith in Christ. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that's true for unbelievers and believers alike. So four truths here in this text. Number one, uh, Jesus' gospel words are offensive to the natural man. Jesus' gospel words, they're, they're words that have good news contained in them. They are gospel words, and they are offensive to the natural man. Our passage falls at the tail end of a long exchange Jesus has had with the Jews in their synagogue about the bread of life. And very patiently, Jesus has gone to great lengths to show them why he fed the 5,000 with bread. And along the way, Jesus has said some things which apparently his disciples find rather disturbing. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, you might keep in mind that the disciples spoken of in verse 60 are different from the 12 disciples we're more familiar with. In fact, we'll see later it's, that it's, it's only the twelve who remain with Jesus while all the other disciples forsake him. So when we, read the, when we read disciples here in verse 60, John means nothing more than those who had committed themselves to following Jesus at that time. They're not actually Christians. They're not actually people who have experienced the new birth. They're simply followers, intrigued by Jesus' signs, wondering what this Jesus is about, uh, curious about what he keeps saying. We might compare them to the folks that we saw back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, uh, who believe in Jesus, but to whom Jesus refuses to entrust himself. Because what they're ultimately believing what they're ultimately doing is that they want his signs in that belief. They don't actually want Jesus himself. So they're followers with what we call their spurious faith, not saving faith. It's, it's an imitation. It's not the real thing. So it's these kinds of disciples 
who are finding Jesus' words a bit unpalatable to their spiritual taste buds. The more Jesus speaks, the more they're growing uneasy with what he's saying about himself and what he's implying about them. When they say this is a hard saying, they don't mean that it's, it's, it's just too difficult to understand intellectually, but that it's outright offending them. It's scandalous in their eyes. It's, it's making the hairs on their neck stand up and disgust to rise in their soul. It's causing them to blush in front of their Jewish brothers and the synagogue officials. I mean, after all, Jesus has called them out on their unbelief uh, several times, as well as their refusal to accept him as the bread of life. He told them in verse 27 that they're ultimately spending their lives for food that perishes. The food that they want is is just enough to fill their bellies, but it, it will still leave them in their sins, perishing. In verse 29, he also mentioned that the works they so much prided themselves on as Jews actually contribute nothing to their salvation but that only a faith relationship with Jesus is what really matters to God. And then three times over, he tells them he's, that his bread is superior to anything Israel ever received in the wilderness. And had they believed what that original manna was pointing to all along, they would understand their need for eternal life and why God's Son had to come down. Twice, he indicates that their Jewish ancestry means absolutely nothing for their entrance into the kingdom of God. And that what really matters is God's sovereign work of regeneration. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then if that wasn't enough to humble them, he throws into the mix that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they are to have eternal life. Meaning Jesus intends to lay down his unblemished flesh and sacrifice, much like the Passover lamb was slaughtered to deliver God's people from death. If they wanted life, they must partake of the benefits of Jesus' death by faith. Otherwise, they would die in their sins. There would ultimately be nothing to hide them from God's wrath, nothing to protect them from the eternal death they deserved for transgressing God's law. What Jesus has essentially done is told them nothing short of the gospel. He came down from heaven to earth to give his flesh for the life of the world because that same world as a whole sat under death for their sins and couldn't do anything about it. That's what he's been telling them throughout chapter 6. He came down from heaven to earth to give his life Give his flesh for the life of the world because that same world as a whole sat under death for their sins and couldn't do anything about it. And that world includes the Jews who are in bed with the Gentile idolaters. Jesus' words have simultaneously revealed two things. We are all great sinners who deserve God's wrath. And he is the only Savior who absorbs God's wrath in our place and gives eternal life. And here's where the offense begins to rise for these disciples as they're listening to Jesus. Because to embrace what Jesus is saying is to embrace that your sin has made you so unspeakably atrocious to God that he must sacrifice no one less than the Son of Man. In your place. This is why they grumble. Not only are their scandalous sins exposed, but Jesus hasn't stopped short of saying that their expected Messiah, the Son of Man, will be slaughtered like a lamb in their place. Jesus presses the issue again in verses 61 to 62. He says, Jesus, it says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? That is what I've just explained to you about the Son of Man dying. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
So now they have the full story. This is the seventh time Jesus has used the Son of Man. And I see no reason to believe that his references are to anything other than Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. We read it last week. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. That's where the Son of Man was before. He was with the Ancient of Days. Or as John puts it in chapter 1 of his gospel, he was in the beginning with God. He is the only God who is at the Father's side. He is the one on whom the angels of God ascend and descend. And now Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? With the Ancient of Days... Ascending to where he was before. So we know where he was before in heaven with his father. And now he plans to ascend back to his father when his work on earth is finished. What Jesus is saying, if you do not accept the Son of Man's work on earth, you do not accept the Son of Man's reign in heaven. Or if you're offended... By a crucified Messiah, then you'll never accept the reigning one. The reigning Messiah is the crucified Messiah. The Messiah doesn't conquer sin and sickness and death and powers and principalities through imperial force. He conquers through the blood of his cross. Think of the scripture text... After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Colossians 2.15 Revelation 5.10 Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered... So that he can open the scroll and its seals. And between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. All of heaven knows how the lion-like Messiah conquers. He became a lamb-like Messiah first. All of heaven sings, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals For you were slain. This is how he conquers. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. If these disciples don't brace the scandal of Jesus' crucifixion, the Son of Man's crucifixion on earth, they will not participate in the joys of of his crown. And the same is true for all of us. Jesus is the only immortal one who put on mortality for our sake. He is heaven's only treasure who took on our poverty that we might become rich. He's the infinitely worthy one who became a curse in our place. He's the one full of grace and truth who was torn like he was a wicked liar and religious hypocrite. He's the one who is wholly pure but was rejected like he himself was an adulterer. He was eternally in the Father's bosom but he suffered his Father's wrath that was rightly due us. The omnipotent one chose not to save himself from the wretched death we deserved. Israel's lion took the identity of a lamb for our rescue. If we're unwilling to accept that scandal, that the infinitely worthy Son of Man came to die the death we deserved, if we are unwilling to accept that scandalous 
death as our only hope for salvation, then we will forfeit eternal life with God. We would do well to remember that we were all in this place of rebellion at one time. Some of you may still be offended by the cross. Might you consider that that the problem these disciples are having, swallowing Jesus' words, is the problem we all have apart from divine grace. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ cannot be embraced by just anybody. It's far too offensive to our prideful flesh. Our flesh refuses to see itself as all that rebellious against an infinitely holy God. And some story of a God-man dying as a criminal seems like a rather foolish plan to save me. That's how we think in our flesh. Sure, many people can embrace Jesus' death as a historical event. But simply confessing that Jesus died means jack squat if we will not also confess that he died for our sins. Jesus' death was a historical event, but the offense lies in what God achieved in the slaughter of the Son of God. Jesus' death is offensive because it exposes how far we're separated from God and what great length God's Son went to bring us back to Him. When the cross is upheld for the offense it truly is, nobody can embrace it naturally. By nature, we are morally opposed to it. Paul says that the message of the cross, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. The natural man, he goes on to say, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, things like the cross of Christ. They don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The only people who can see through the offense of the cross to the glories of a Lamb who takes away the sin of the world are only those in whom the Spirit works conversion. That's the next truth which unfolds in our passage Number two, the Spirit enables us to embrace Jesus' gospel words. These words are offensive to the natural man, but the Spirit enables us to embrace Jesus' gospel words. I mentioned earlier that we don't live in a neutral world, but in a world hostile to Jesus. Even Jesus' own people, the Jews, refuse to acknowledge their own Messiah. When Jesus speaks the word of the gospel, he does so to a morally rebellious world running away from him. And what Jesus makes clear in verses 63 to 65 is that if any person in this world believes, it's wholly owing to God overcoming their rebellion and resistance through the Spirit. You sang about it earlier. You alone can rescue Jesus says in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me. No one is able to come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. These disciples that we're looking at aren't fooling Jesus. They're not fooling him by their apparent allegiance in public. He sees right through them. 
to what is true of their hearts, and their hearts are still full of unbelief. That's why they keep attempting to understand Jesus' words in the flesh. In their own limited, broken, prideful, self-focused flesh. And every time they're totally missing the point. Just look at a few of them. Verse 34. They prefer heavenly manna over the one who came down from heaven. And so they say, sir, give us this bread always, this physical bread. We want some more of this stuff. Jesus tells them that he's the bread of life. And in verse 41, they grumble among themselves about how he could possibly say that he came down from heaven. When they know he's the son of Joseph. We know his father and mother. Jesus tells them he's going to give his flesh for the life of the world. And they dispute among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And here again, they grumble about Jesus' words being too offensive instead of embracing them for eternal life. Their dependence on the flesh for understanding looks no different than that of Nicodemus in chapter 3. When, when Jesus tells him that you must be born again, Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus then goes on to expose Nicodemus' dependence on the flesh by saying in verse 6 of chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, Nicodemus. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then here again in our text, guys, the flesh is of no help at all. No human act, no Jewish heritage, no particular ethnicity, no bloodline connection, uh, no Christian home, no human wisdom brings sinners into eternal life. The Spirit alone gives life. A person must be changed by the Spirit from the inside out if they are to experience the life Jesus is talking about. We saw this very same thing back in verses 44 to 45 a couple of weeks ago where Jesus says there that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we looked at how uh, how that act of drawing, we looked at how from Isaiah uh, 54, verse 13, God's act of drawing is bound up with the inward transformation associated with the new covenant. The way God draws people to the Son is by causing an inner renewal so that they want the Son, they want to follow God's statutes, they love the Son. They believe in the Son. Well, what Jesus clarifies for us further here is that the Spirit and Jesus' words are the agents that God the Father uses in drawing people to His Son. We get a very similar statement like we, like we heard uh, before in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And that statement follows what he said in verse 63 about the Spirit giving life and the very words of Jesus being Spirit and life. That means Jesus' words are produced by the Spirit and they generate life in the soul of man. And just as a clarification... Parenthesis, we're not just talking about Jesus' words in the sense of red letters in, the, in our Bibles. We're talking about all of Scripture here. So, with that clarification, close parenthesis. So, Jesus' words are spirit and life. They generate life in the soul of man. When the Spirit does this in an individual, you know what happens? Faith. Faith happens. Faith in Jesus Christ is the first cry of the new birth. Apart from this work, all of us would end up like those disciples mentioned 
in verse 66. You can read that with me. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Apart from that divine work of grace, spiritual regeneration of our hearts, apart from that work, we will end up like the disciples in verse 66, walking away from Jesus. That is a devastating statement. Literally, the text reads, after this, many of his disciples went away to what was behind. They, they went away. They left some things for a time to see what this Jesus guy is all about. And they found those things that they had left behind to be more satisfying than Jesus. I don't want to walk with this man anymore. I want what I left behind. They no longer walked with the infinitely glorious Son of Man because they found greater pleasure in what they initially left behind to follow Him. The tragedy of unbelief in these verses is much like that of the second and third soils that we find in uh, Jesus' parable of the sower. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 13, some immediately receive the word with joy, but it doesn't take root. And when tribulation or persecution arises, they fall away. Others hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. They no longer walk with Jesus. I think a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning is why do any of us believe to begin with? Why do any of you find Jesus' words not intolerable but life-giving? What has made you different from the rest of the world who opposes Jesus? If you confess that Jesus is Lord this morning, these words teach us that it wasn't your intelligence that made all the difference. It wasn't because you grew up in a Christian home. It wasn't your rock-bottom experience that you then learned to do yourself right. It wasn't even finally a matter of your autonomous human decision. Ultimately, the only reason you've embraced Jesus' words for eternal life is that God's Holy Spirit awakened you with them. You flew to Jesus for life because the Spirit gave, opened your eyes and gave you wings. I once heard a brother say that the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. I wonder if that is your song every morning you arise. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Why? Why? Do you like Jesus? Why are you following him? Because the Spirit of God has taken his words and awakened your heart to him. That you might love him and savor him and treasure him and want more of his words. Even when they offend you. i, I got to have more of him. That brings us to the, the third truth that unfolds. Here, the true disciples treasure Jesus despite the opposition. A true disciple will treasure Jesus and his words despite the opposition. At this point, only the twelve remain at Jesus' side. In chapter 6, chapter, if you think of how chapter 6 has progressed... Chapter 6 began with more than 5,000 people, and we end up with 12 minus 1 in a minute. 5,000 people following Jesus. He starts talking, people start leaving. Save 12 right now. How does genuine faith respond when the rest of the world flips Jesus the bird? Genuine faith responds with treasuring Jesus all the more. Look at verse 67 where Jesus challenges the twelve. 
Do you want to go away as well? Now, he doesn't ask for his own sake. Verses 61 and 64 have told us already that Jesus knows. Jesus knows where, whether people believe in him or not. Verse 61, Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this. Verse 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. So they've told us that Jesus knows whether people believe him or not. He's, he knows everything about our hearts. The reason he asks the disciples this question is not to gain information. Do you want to go away as well? but to give opportunity for faith to prove its true colors in an unbelieving world. And so Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. I love this response. I use this text all the time in membership interviews. It's just a great response that pushes people beyond the mere mental assent to the facts of the gospel, beyond some of the superficialities of an interview, to actually witnessing what it means to treasure Jesus. If everybody abandons you and the Jesus you've come to know, would your heart still cry out, Lord, to whom else shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Is he like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up? And then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field, to have Jesus and the kingdom? Is that how valuable he is to you? 5,000 turn their back to, to the world. They forsake Jesus, but I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. Your words never come up short. They always give life. That's the nature of the faith, of true saving faith. It treasures Jesus despite the opposition. Something else I love about this confession is that Peter still doesn't even understand everything about Jesus. There's an unwavering assurance about Jesus that Peter has after Jesus rises from the dead, but that's not present here. In fact, when we get to chapter 13, Peter even says, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. When ironically, it's the other way around. Jesus will lay down his life for him. So Peter's still kind of piecing things together here. But what he does know about Jesus, he loves. What he does hear Jesus saying, he embraces as eternal life. You don't have to know every little theological nuance about Jesus in order to be his disciple. But a true disciple of Jesus won't bristle when he says things like, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Even if you don't understand, your cry will be, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I don't know what that means, but you please show me. I'm not going anywhere. Teach me. The more a true disciple learns from Jesus, the more a true disciple will grow in treasuring Jesus. Jesus' words may even confuse us at times or expose us at other times or even lay us very low. But we'll keep coming back for more and more and more. Later on, I think it's in chapter 8, to go back and doing this from memory, uh, Jesus says that the true disciples are those who abide in his word. There's an enduring quality to their faith because they want more. They want more of his words for eternal life. So despite how much his words may even sting us at times... We, we know ultimately that they're going to make us sing on the last day. And so we just keep coming for more. So true disciples treasure Jesus despite the world's 
opposition. Even in the face of the world taking offense at a crucified Messiah, we stand our ground with him and treasure him for eternal life. Last truth, number four, Jesus encourages true disciples with his sovereign mission. He encourages. So he's preached the offense of the cross. His spirit has given life to the disciples. Those disciples are treasuring him. And now he says, here's how I ground my disciples from this point forward. They are acquainted with my sovereign mission. It's one thing to confess that Jesus has the words of eternal life when the world opposes Jesus and you still have 11 friends with you. It's another matter when one of, your friend, when, when one of the friends in the inner circle is in cahoots with the devil himself. Verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? And then John adds, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the second time we, we kind of get this little side note by John about Judas. The other one came in verse 64. For Jesus, John says, therefore, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and, here it is, who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew that from the beginning. Both in verse 64 and here in verses 70 to 71, John's emphasis is that Jesus is heading to the cross not because evil is winning. Jesus is not going to the cross because evil is winning, but because he is fulfilling a sovereign plan of redemption set forth by his Father in heaven. He is sovereign in his choice of the twelve, and he is sovereign in his choice to make one of the twelve, Judas, his betrayer. Judas would betray Jesus not apart from Jesus' control. Judas would betray Jesus under Jesus' control in fact, Judas' betrayal of God's Son was even planned in the Scriptures. Look with me at chapter 13. For a minute, page 900 in your pew Bibles. Chapter 13. And I want to start in verse 16. Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel Against me. That's a quotation from Psalm 41, verse 9, out of the mouth of David. Then look at why Jesus tells them this about Judas in verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. You may believe that I am He. So even when they find Jesus' cross and the events surrounding it totally dark and desperate and difficult and defeating, his word about Judas shows that even the chaos serves God's sovereign purpose to save his elect. That scripture text is fulfilled when Jesus hands Judas the morsel of bread, and it says in verse 27 of chapter 13, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. You don't do anything without my permission. 
None of the evils surrounding the cross, not even the betrayal of a close friend, not even the work of Satan himself, fall outside of Jesus' control. Jesus' words in chapter 6, verse 70, function the same way. They reveal that Jesus' mission is part of God's sovereign plan. It's part of God's sovereign plan. We can think of the way that even the apostles uh, preach this to the unbelieving crowd in chapter 2 of Acts. Peter kicks off his sermon to Israel by saying... This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And he ends with repent and believe. It's, uh, we see it reflected in the way the church prays in Acts chapter 4 verse 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. John's making the same point. In his gospel, the point is that Jesus is in control as he heads to the utter darkness of the cross. And that means for us, and what that means for us, is that the cross should be a continual reminder that the darkness cannot ultimately overcome the light. The darkness cannot ultimately overcome the light. That's what the cross of Christ teaches us. He's in control of the darkness. Many of you experience the darkness of the world. You have had sons who are much like these disciples who find Jesus' words intolerable and they walk away. A friend commits suicide for reasons you're still confused about. Your dad continues to reject the gospel that you've preached to him a hundred times over. The powers and principalities are relentless in tempting you with dark dreams and depressing mornings. Your husband continues to disobey the word of God despite your patient prayers. The pain of your daughter's broken home shatters your soul as a dad. Your besetting sins seem too great to overcome. And we could just go on stacking darkness after darkness after darkness that at times feel like I, I am on the verge of just being crushed, done. But what we gain from these words here is that what Jesus is saying is that by looking again at the cross, by looking again at the cross, even the darkest moment in history when the infinitely beautiful Son was betrayed and crucified, even that was not outside of God's control. It is the darkest moment. We have darknesses. And that's not to minimize the darknesses that you might be facing right now. But the darkest point in the history of the universe is when God the Father poured out His infinite wrath on an infinitely worthy Son for unworthy people like us. That is the darkest moment in the history of the world. And that was not outside of God's control Christ entered that darkness as planned by the Father, willingly embracing the betrayal, willingly suffering the forsakenness of those three hours, willingly swallowing up our sins as He endured His Father's wrath, that He might conquer the darkness by rising again from the dead. <laughs> that is good news. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 5 is true. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it.
It cannot. Even with, with, in relation to Judas, if you go back and read chapter th- uh, 13 in verse 30, it says that once Jesus goes out, Jesus gives him the morsel, Judas goes out. And once Judas goes out to betray Jesus, it says, and it was night. The darkness had fallen. And Jesus is still on the throne. Go into the cross so that on the other side he might blow the darkness to smithereens by rising from the dead. We're often tempted to dwell on the darkness, but when we listen to Jesus' words here, we see that the darkness cannot ultimately overcome God's sovereign mission in Christ. Sure, we still cry out to God. Why is this or that happening? Why aren't you returning yet? But the cross shows us that God is not silent. He, the cross does not allow us to offer those cries to God in vain. The cross stands as a continual reminder to God's saints that darkness is under God's control and it cannot ultimately win. We know that because the Son of Man came down and has ascended to where He was before. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. God's Son is sovereign in his mission to save the world. May the Lord plant your feet firmly in his sovereign care as you continue looking to the cross and listening to Jesus' words for eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you uh, would uh, write your words upon our hearts. May we store them up in our souls, that we may walk in humility, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. May we walk in amazement and thanksgiving that we have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, even through hearing of the offense of the cross. And we thank you that we have a rock-solid foundation on which to stand in your sovereign care over us in Christ. May we continue to look there and trust in these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.